I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false prophets, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning we are carrying on with the series that we began some weeks ago on our ancient foe, looking at the various ways in which Satan interacts with this world and especially with the people of God and the church of Jesus Christ and how we are called to stand against those schemes and having done everything to stand. And last week we were looking specifically at Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, which says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But I hope it came through as we looked at that passage that Paul was not saying that the enemies of God and his people are never real flesh and blood enemies. They almost always are. David fought a flesh and blood Philistine when he confronted Goliath. The apostle Paul was often attacked, not only by individuals, but also by institutions and governments. Flesh and blood rulers and authorities 
like Felix and Festus, Agrippa and Caesar, with all of the might of the Roman government behind them to prosecute that attack. Even Jesus, who came to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, that was his primary conflict, was most often threatened by real flesh and blood people and by the institutions that had such power in Galilee and Judea in his day, the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Our ancient foe always is attacking us, as we've seen so often in the Heidelberg Catechism, but he works through people. What Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 6 is that Satan, the devil, is the enemy standing in the shadows behind all of those others. Another example of this that we would find in Scripture would be Peter in Matthew chapter 16. Now that may seem a little strange, but it's true. Having been asked by Jesus, who do you say that I am? Peter replied in Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But just two very short verses later, when Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed, notice, by the way, the flesh and blood character of those who would cause him to suffer and eventually put him to death. But Peter seeks to intervene in that moment. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes the Lord saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. In effect, he's saying, you will not go to the cross, Jesus. You are not going to suffer and die at Jerusalem. We are not going to let that happen. But it's Jesus' answer to Peter that we really want to notice this morning. He turned and said to him, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. The word there is stumbling stone, stumbling block. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So as noted in one of the study Bibles that I routinely use, Simon is called Peter, the rock, when he rightly confesses Jesus' messiahship. But when he rejects Jesus' forecast of his own suffering, Jesus labels Simon Satan an opponent, but also the mouthpiece of the Satan who earlier had offered Jesus all of the world's kingdoms without going to the cross. And he names him hindrance or stumbling block, a rock that causes a fall or obstructs a path. But it's not that Satan was necessarily present right there in that moment when Peter spoke to Jesus and Jesus spoke to Peter. One of the things that we have a tendency to do that I hope I've addressed at least some in this series is to give Satan way too much credit. We call him the God of this world. Well, who would want us to think of Satan as a God in any sense? I, I think the answer is pretty clear. Who would want us to think that he's omnipresent, that he can be everywhere at the same time when in reality he can't? 
He is a single spiritual being. If he is harassing someone on the other side of the planet in this moment, he cannot be here. Now, of course, he has demons who work along with him. But Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He doesn't even know what we're thinking necessarily at any given moment. And he certainly doesn't have access to the hearts and minds of those who have believed in Jesus Christ and been filled with his Holy Spirit. He just can't do that. So it's not that he had possessed Peter. He couldn't do that. And it's not that he was speaking directly through Peter's mouth and Peter could just say, the devil made me do it, sorry, Jesus. That would be just way too easy. I remember a story that I heard when I was a boy about another little boy, not me, who asked his mom one day if he could go down to the lake and go swimming, and she said, no, it was Sunday, and we don't swim on the Lord's Day. So he set off with the very best of intentions to just go for a walk down by the lake. And he got down by the lake, and there was a dock there, and he thought, well, I can walk out on the dock. So he walked out on the dock and then returned rather sheepishly sometime later, his Sunday go-to-meet-and-clothes just totally soaking wet. And when his mom confronted him and said, I told you not to go swimming, he manfully said, I, I, I tried my best, Mom, to yield not to temptation. In fact, when the temptation hit me to jump in the water, I shouted, Get thee behind me, Satan. And sure enough, didn't the devil get behind me and just push me straight into the lake. See, we want to be able to say, the devil made me do it. Because if we can say that, if we can say that the words that just came out of our mouth or that thing that we just did that hurt some other person was really just the devil making us do it, then we don't have to own it and we don't have to repent of it. Peter may well have wanted to say the devil made me do it, Jesus. That was the devil who made me say that about you not going to the cross. But that's not the point. Jesus rebukes him in the way that he does to simply say that when Satan, when, when Peter started speaking Satan's agenda, the things of man rather than the things of God, in that moment, Peter had actually switched sides. He had temporarily, in his case, gone over to the enemy. He would do it a couple of other times in his life, once at the crucifixion or at the trial of Jesus when he would deny Christ. And again, in, in um, Galatians, Paul talks about how Peter would take his stand against the gospel and Paul would need to oppose him to his face. And in those moments, as he considers the things of man to be more important than the things of God, he is speaking on Satan's agenda. And Jesus addresses him in exactly that context, saying, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And as I said, it wouldn't be for the last time. I do think this is the sort of thing 
that Paul had in mind in verse 14 of our text in 2 Corinthians 11 when he wrote, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light or maybe sometimes as a beloved and trusted friend. Thanks to some portrayals of the evil one that came from Hollywood, um, so take it for what it's worth, the exorcist comes to mind, we seem to have this idea as Christians that Satan inevitably draws near in the darkness with sulfurous breath and bat wings to chill our souls and to just suck all the joy from our lives. But the great red dragon of Revelation 12 is not the devil's public persona. That's not how he appears to the world. I think, as a matter of fact, he may be a little embarrassed by the way that some heavy metal bands have portrayed him to the world. In Genesis, when he came to our first parents in Eden, it says the serpent was more crafty, not the serpent was more ugly or more terrifying than any other beast of the field. If he had come to Adam and Eve in a form that had truly scared them, I think maybe they would have just turned and run straight back to God. And if he came to us in that sort of form, we might do the same thing today. But the apostle wrote in verse 3, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I wasn't sure where to fit this in, but Martin Luther once, wrote, once said something along the lines of when Satan fell from heaven, he fell into the choir loft of, of the church. And his point was to say he, he didn't come as this evil, hideous, scary beast. He came as this insidious purveyor of false teaching, which is so often easily done through some of the music that we might sing. Now what Paul says, that I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, is of course very parallel to what he wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, where he said to the Galatian church, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. I want you to notice that in both cases, it's not a matter of turning from one possible emphasis in the gospel to another. It's not a case of turning from a salvation-oriented gospel to a social gospel or a social justice gospel, for instance. In both of these passages, Paul makes it clear that when you turn away from the gospel, you are deserting him who called you, and you are being led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's not this gospel versus that gospel. It's the true gospel of Jesus Christ that God has given to us in his word or a turning away from God who spoke in that word. He makes that clear in both of these texts. And he makes clear in 2 Corinthians how that would happen. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we have proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one that you received, 
or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That's why he was afraid that maybe they were being led astray from the grace of Christ because they were putting up with this false teaching. You tolerate it. You accept it, says Paul. Maybe as a matter of just keeping an open mind, like the church at Pergamos in Revelation 2, to whom the Lord said, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. And then there was Thyatira. But I have this against you, said the Lord, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food, sacrifice to idols. The word translated sexual immorality there is just that Greek word pornea. It's kind of the all-encompassing word. Older translations would have said fornication. But maybe we notice a theme there. Maybe we notice something to watch for when false teachers get busy in the church. And Corinth, too, it appears that there were influential and charismatic teachers behind this turning away that Paul had noticed. In verse 5, he wrote, probably with more than a little sarcasm, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. After all, he had previously written to the Galatians, but even if we, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema. Let him be damned. Never mind the super apostles then. Paul includes even himself in this, and the angels of heaven too. And he repeats himself for emphasis. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And the reason for this is clear in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such men are false apostles, not super apostles. Those who distort the gospel are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. That shouldn't come as any surprise, because Jesus himself had said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Jesus had already acknowledged to his disciples, even before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that there were going to be wolves who would mix in with the flock to devour them. And later, John the Apostle said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Peter, too, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And Jude, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, 
who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So according to Jude, these false teachers, these false apostles, these deceitful workmen can be known by the fact that they deny our Master and Lord Jesus. Now given the times in which all of these texts were written, there wasn't anyone who would even remotely be connected to the church who was saying, Jesus is not a real person. There was nobody named Jesus. That's just a figment of your imagination. There's all kinds of people saying that today. But back then, there wasn't. What they were denying was not the existence of a real flesh and blood Jesus. What they were denying was that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the anointed one of God, that he was God the Son come in the flesh, and that he was Master and Lord, that he is Master and Lord. They were just preaching another Jesus. They were preaching a Jesus whose grace was so overwhelming that he didn't bother calling people to holiness. We could just walk in our sin and do whatever we want to do because grace covers it all. Well, that's another Jesus. Jude also points out that that sort of proclamation of that sort of Christ seems to lead inevitably towards sensuality. When false teachers are discussed in all of these texts, they inevitably deny the lordship of Jesus Christ by undermining the authority of his word, and that leads to people deciding that we don't need to actually listen to what God has called us to be and to do. We can just do whatever we want. Sensuality is defined as incorrigible and reckless sensual indulgence especially in sexual immorality, but not limited to that. Remember that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols? This is the direction that this kind of false teaching goes, and it has always been a problem. We have teachers in the church today who are questioning the inspiration and the authority and the sufficiency of God's holy word. I recently heard someone say, it's not a book about the things we ought to do. Well, that's really strange, because actually some of the texts that were used to tell us it's not a book about the things we ought to do actually were texts that tell us that God has called us to holiness, and he has called us to lives that please him. But when we start to undermine the inspiration of the word of God, did this book actually come from God? Well, if not, then we've undermined the authority of the word. It cannot speak to us in ways that call us to live a certain kind of life. And once we've done that, we've undermined its sufficiency as well. It's not enough. We need something else. We need modern science to come along and tell us really how things are in terms of our morality and what's true and how we ought to live. 
Questioning the word of God is a denial of the authority of the lordship, not of the word, but of Jesus Christ himself over all areas of our life, including our sexuality. This comes as no surprise. Paul wrote in verses 13 through 15 of 2 Corinthians 11, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Like I said, he doesn't show up in the darkness with claws and fangs, dripping blood and bat wings and all of the horrifying things that we may have seen in Hollywood films. He shows up as an angel of light proclaiming goodness and wonderful things. And it's no surprise then if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So what are we to do? Well, Jude exhorted his readers to contend earnestly, to struggle, to fight for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There is this body of truth. The word of God, the holy and divine scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, which was delivered to the people of God by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in a way that it comes to us as a very sufficient and authoritative word of God our Father. And it is to be defended against all who would undermine it, whatever means they might use in undermining it. And it's interesting that Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12, and what I am doing... I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. So Paul, the apostle of God's grace and mercy and love, makes clear that in his approach to those who would subvert and undermine and twist the gospel, he seeks to undermine them and their work. As we read last Lord's Day in 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. What are those strongholds? Well, we destroy arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul's saying there are false teachers out there. There always have been, there probably always will be until Christ returns in glory. And part of our job as the people of God is to take up the sword of the Spirit and to wield it against the schemes of the devil. As part of the whole armor of God, that's what we are to do, to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit that is the Word of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. May we pray.
Father in heaven, speak to us by your word and by your spirit. Sanctify us, set us apart in the truth. Your word is truth. And Father, help us to stand in the truth of your word that we may extinguish through the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, all of those fiery darts that the evil one sends our way to destroy us, to destroy your church, and, Father, to continuously attack our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to stand in him and in him alone, wrapped in his grace, and, Father, having done all, to just stand, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.